It's episode 60 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Leah Buley. She's the Director of Design Education at Envision and has spent her career researching how companies integrate design. We're going to talk about ways of measuring the maturity of an organization's design practice and how you might improve yours. Leah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, it's just I'm great. It's so glad I'm so glad you were able to be on the show. Uh, and actually, I'm so glad we were able to uh, find a time to do this because we were in that magical period uh, where some countries are in daylight savings time and others are not. And I think you are somewhere between four and twenty yeah. hours. Time. I, I don't know. I've lost track. Somewhere, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's like Brigadoon. It's like there's a two week period and then all of a sudden this window just disappears and uh, and never to be seen again. That's good. So I feel lucky. I feel lucky we're actually talking on opposite ends of the world right now. It, it's we're good. Both awake. I I saw a tweet from I'm going to call him your president uh, because I don't live there don't anymore. Eat. <laughs> but I saw I a tweet a saying. Like, no, thank you. That, that that he that he was in favor of abolishing uh, uh, daylight savings or staying with daylight savings time, and it was literally the, like the first thing that I may have agreed with. I was like, yeah, well, no, I don't think we should have the time switching I think we every just time. Voted to abolish daylight savings time in California. Actually, really? if I recall correctly, I believe so. I think it's coming. I, I, I don't quote me on that, but I think that was something that I, <laughs> I voted on last last November. There's, there doesn't like part of Ohio not do daylight savings time or something like that. There's like, oh my gosh, Indiana, bit, and Indiana, I know this right. mother-in-law it lives there, and it's it's a complicating factor in my life re- regularly. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think it'd be great if California was, you know. Again, an outlier in so many other ways and just like, eh, we're not doing it anymore. <laughs> Maybe it sounded good to me uh, a couple months ago, but uh, th- just when we just changed it and it was like, you know, pitch black in the morning, I was realizing there, there might be real life consequences to these changes. So I don't know. We'll see. But uh, anyway, here we are now and I'm excited it. and we're talking. And we, are, we are. Um, all right. So I want to I want to find out you are now the uh, director of design education at Envision, um, but uh, you and I. We didn't overlap, but we were both at Adaptive Path relatively early on. Um, yeah. I, I believe I had left and gone to Google already, and, and then you started. But I was around all the time. You had. You had just left, and the measure map acquisition was like lore when I walked <laughs> in. It was like, this is what's possible when you are at Adaptive Path. And I, I don't know that I've ever lived up to the Jeff Bean standard yet, but I continue to oh, hold no. up your example as a model to aspire to. Well, I appreciate you saying that very much. It was uh, <laughs> it was a, it was fun. It was kind of a crazy place. But, um, You're I, telling me. <laughs> I, th- I think there was a lot of good work. We did a lot of good work. I thought we invented a, some stuff, and I thought, yeah, I thought it was really great. It was amazing. I always, I always say that Adaptive Path broke me for other jobs because it's, it's not a job. It's like it's a community, or actually, Peter Merholtz used to call it a socialist kibbutz. Uh, it's, it's just like everyone's there because they believe in the mission, and there's a sort of. A shared expectation that uh, if it's not working for you, you all better pitch in to make it better. And I, I think that's some, I don't know, just that's a principle I've held with me now in subsequent jobs, which probably makes me a total pain in the ass for people <laughs> who employ me, but oh well. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Like, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the culture um, and, and I think that paid off. Um, but what I'm interested in is kind of your... One of the things that always impressed me, I saw you speak at a number of the events, Adaptive Path events and, and other ones out there in the public, uh, is your advocacy for user experience uh, I, I, that came through so uh, clearly and so strongly uh, and and how you've sort of taken that from the kind of, you know, consulting work that we were doing day to day at Adaptive Path into a career of like advocating design within larger organizations. And I'm just wondering like what the path was like, how you got from from there to where you are now. Yeah, um, well... Uh, so, okay, sidebar, actually, I, I was at Intuit for a little while. And 
I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that in a second, but just um, as a way of kind of setting up uh, my story, we did a project at Intuit where we we researched essentially what causes designers to want to go work for a company. And um, we learned that there are different kind of profiles of designers. Based on this research, there are definitely kind of hotshot designers who want to go work with like the best brand, the best product. There are kind of like deep entrenched crafts craftsmen designers, craftswomen designers who want to just like, you know, have their hands in the in the the trade every day. And then there's a kind of designer that we call sort of tacticians. And this these are people who sort of look at each new job, each new project, each new opportunity as a place to supplement skills that they realize they need to continue to round themselves out uh-huh. uh, professionally. And I am a dyed-in-the-wool tactician. Um, so each each new c- career step I've made has been to kind of round myself out in, in, in terms of the questions that um, are interesting to me. So I was a, um, just a user experience designer in-house uh, in um, primarily financial services companies for years and years. And I felt like, ah, I'm, I, I don't know how to be a good consultative designer to my organization. So I went to Ap- Adaptive Path to, to round out those skills. And then when I was at Adaptive Path, I felt like I'm learning how to be a, a, a much stronger designer, but I don't understand why organizations half the time end up not doing what we're suggesting. Mm. So then I went in-house to Intuit to try to learn what happens after the design consultants leave the room. And Intuit was fascinating because it is a culture that has truly embrace design thinking and they've built a lot of mechanisms to make that an enabling capability for every employee in the company not just designers but being there i started to wonder does how is this you know applicable to other organizations and to other industries and and really what are the benefits of that and so then i wanted to have more of a kind of broader uh, industry view to, uh, again, sort of build out that next set of skills. So from there, I, I, I went to work at Forrester Research, actually, as, a, as an analyst looking at the um, design field and its evolving importance to businesses in general. So, uh, so it's been a kind of meandering journey, mostly just to satisfy my own curiosity and, and need to feel like I'm rounding out my skills. Um, but most recently, I came to Envision because... Uh, after being a practitioner for a long time and then working as an analyst, I have a kind of a strange mix of skills that don't necessarily, you know, they're, they're I think they're valuable, but not like there's a, a small set of places in the world that really need them. And it, uh, Aaron Walter from Envision approached me and made it pretty clear that Envision's a place that could use the skills mm-hmm. that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have that background as a practitioner, um, because I, as you've said, like I, I care deeply about the design community and I've and I have spent a lot of time trying to advocate for what will make them more successful. And also because I have that analyst bent and I have um, just some you know, experience in broadly looking at what helps companies use design more effectively. And all those things came together really perfectly and magically in the role that I have uh, as a director of design education at Envision. That's great. So that I've, that's a that's a. Uh I think a really effective framework for thinking about your career, which is uh, how can wh- what's the next company that can help me get better? I like mm-hmm. that. I like that a lot. I don't. I don't think that's particularly selfish or uh, or any or mercenary or anything. Uh, really, it is, um, but a really effective way of of just kind of planning out what how might I progress. Uh, as I go forward, that's interesting. And it's and it's not just the next company. It's like also the next project, yeah, yeah. the next partnership. I mean, I think it, it can apply where you are as well. And it it does, I think, harken back to the adaptive path days where we we really, we looked at each new project and each new client as like, how 
how will this be a place where we can continue to push on our understanding of the importance of user experience and its value to organizations so that we can you know, share those learnings with the fields? And it, it just it feels I think it creates a virtuous cycle where you get better and then you help the people you work with get better, too. Mm, well, it certainly was from a, from like a depth to pass perspective on, frankly, marketing our services, which was yeah. everything we learn, we should give away for free uh, and people should pay us to come perform it if we if they want us to. And, and this is a little bit the philosophy of Envision, right? Which is everything we, should, we learn, we should give away for free. And then hopefully the tool, the platform has enough value for you that you then do that work yeah, in the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the sort of rising tide, you know, that sort of cliche as well. Uh, it's it just like if we could get more out there, more people thinking about this and whatnot, then there's just going to be more f- – less scarcity of, of, of funding for all of it. Right. Yeah. You know, exactly. like there'd just be more money around if, if people are thinking more about user experience or, or, or design the way that we define it. So and I think that yeah. that paid off. There seems to be a lot more money around for that I these so. days than I there used so. to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think so. Uh, yeah. it might be, it might be hidden uh, from time to time, but, uh, True. I think I'm fine. I'm trying to figure out the code words for, for where it might be <laughs> hidden, you know, like if anyone can find them. Yeah. 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 Like a lot of people calling things product that we used to call user experience. That really apparently is a code yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be effective. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> all right, I want to back up a little bit and just, uh, before we get into the, uh, the other stuff, ask you about what it was like being an analyst of Forrester. Like that just seems like you're supposed to be a like 22 year old MBA and just like, you know, crunch spreadsheets all the time. But it no, it sounds much, more, much more interesting than that. Yeah, it was great. It was a, a another really uh, beautiful experience and a fascinating education. I think the first thing that that um, I realized when I came in is that having been in the design field for so long, I had a really um, specific vocabulary and set of kind of frames for how I thought about the work. And then I started having conversations with people with different language and frames for uh, how they thought about their work, even though in a way we were all talking about the same work. So um, the the customer experience people were uh, using different frames and language to describe much of the, the same thing. The the digital transformation people were, you know, again doing that. Mm. Um, so being there, I think, helped me realize uh, how design actually really is, how it plays, and how it's a part of these bigger uh, organizational imperatives that other people in the company might be talking about, but that actually we all have to contribute to. So that was that was really eye opening for me. Also, I just as an analyst, you just talk to a different type of person when yeah. when you're at Adaptive Path. The person who's buying your services is you know, typically pretty knowledgeable about user experience design or, you know, digital product design, uh, though we didn't call it that back then. And they, in some cases, they're pretty, you know, senior buyers, but in a lot of cases, they're kind of mid-level people who are more like responsible for getting things done. And when you're at Forrester, it's, you know, you're just talking to CMOs and CIOs and CEOs kind of on the regular. And it just, it it helps to learn to um, up-level the conversation, but also target, target it to kind of different um, concerns. Uh, so, so that's great for that. And then the other thing that was fascinating to realize was actually uh, all the like research skills <laughs> and and analysis skills and strategy skills that I had as a as a like a, a design strategist were relevant for doing analyst work. Um, being able to do qualitative research and then to kind of connect it with a quantitative mm, uh, yeah. lens, it's like yeah. that was my superpower there. And I, I think I was better at the qual stuff in a way than some analysts because we've done so much of it as a design researcher and design strategist. Oh, I bet in collecting the qualitative research as well, just the conducting interviews and, and things like that, just all of that, that uh, attempts 
that we have used at being non-biased and open questions and uh, as non-influential in the conversation as we can, you know, that yeah. sort of stuff. And listening for sort of a deeper meaning yeah, and not yeah. necessarily taking things kind of at, at face value, but probing further, all that became helpful. Interesting. And what was the output then? Were you like, you know, doing those yeah. big reports of like the impact of design and yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Um, yeah, I produced. I produced reports. Um, I did a kind of a series of reports about the state of the user experience field and about its relationship to the customer experience field. Forrester does a lot of analysis on customer experience, so we were trying to kind of disambiguate those terms. Mm. Um, I did some pretty interesting research into the state of the service design field, um, and uh, and then also just kind of like how you do best practices around testing and validation and uh, concept generation and, and some of the practical stuff that can be a little bit like black magic inside organizations. So um, I did that kind of analysis. And then also you end up doing kind of uh, advisory work with companies. So went and talked to a lot of companies about how they're, they're doing their work. Cool. Wow. That sounds fascinating. That's really interesting. It must've been super cool. And that then brought you over to Envision, right? Yeah, that, I, yeah took a, I took a beat actually. Yeah, I, I, I left Forrester and I, w I worked independently for a couple of years as um, I did kind of analysis for hire uh, and then also uh, organizational, like design organization consulting. And then I got pregnant like a week after I left Forrester. So I had a baby <laughs> somewhere along the way in there too. Nice. The, the thing I really wanted to sort of dig into uh, around that was this, this report that came out, I think it was just a couple months ago now, was or, or uh, even more recently? January, end January. of January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, that um, that Envision released around kind of a maturity model for for looking at organizations' design, the integration of design into what what they're doing. Uh, I'm probably hacking that pretty poorly. No, maybe well maybe you should maybe you should describe it uh, a little more and just sort of how you got there and, and what's that about. Yeah. So I mean, uh, overall, it's a a kind of state of the of the design industry report and specifically you know, digital product design. But within that analysis. Uh, we uh, identified a kind of naturally occurring uh, maturity model for where the state is right now. So the report gives some high-level data about what's going on um, in terms of organizations' uh, adoption of design, the um, kind of benefits they're seeing from design, things like you know average sizes of design teams. But then it really gets into the meat of um, what is it? What is an immature organization, or let's say a less mature? Uh, organization look like in terms of design? And then what are the kind of gradations of maturity uh, leading up to those most mature organizations? With maturity meaning like the business is getting concrete benefits from design. And so kind of let's go back to what we were talking about before, the motivation for a company that makes design software to do a report like this is just in general trying to get a sense of that the impact that that design is having as part of their market. Like, Help me understand why, why Envision be interested in this stuff. I, there's actually so many reasons for us to be interested in this stuff. It, it is part of what we were talking about before, which is if we can share with the industry more broadly what um, what's going on and what it means to do design well, that's information that can you know lift all boats. Um, also, we need to understand for our, in order to actually make a great product what's going on in the industry and what the more mature design practices are. So that becomes a, a kind of knowledge platform that we can make decisions uh, based on as well. And then when we talk about actually engaging with, you know, our clients, like being able to understand like, okay, here is where you are in your design maturity journey. And that doesn't mean you need to fix it all right now, but, you know, 
some obvious next steps for the way that you can start to get greater collaboration or engagement or more informed decision making would be to you know do X, Y, and Z. So it's um it, it's a tool that serves us in a lot of different ways. And because we have this kind of philosophy of just giving away the information, we tried to write a report that is clear and, and really transparent about what's going on in the industry and gives people data that they can also use to have conversations inside their organizations about about what they're doing with design. All right, we'll take a little break here and talk a bit about one of the sponsors that makes Presentable possible, and that is uh, our friends at ExpressVPN. So look, we can probably all hold our hands up and admit cybercrime is something we think happens to other people. Never going to happen to me. Who's going who's gonna to look at my data? I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, but the question you should really ask is, is who wouldn't want your data, right? Like the bad news is that stealing data from people like you and me who are using public Wi-Fi is just one of the simplest ways for hackers to make some money. So if you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your passwords and credit card numbers are, honestly, they are vulnerable. Um, but there is something that you could do to protect yourself from these criminals, and that is to start using a VPN. And the one you should use is ExpressVPN. It works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts all your data and hides your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that just run in the background. You don't even notice them. Uh, you can turn on ExpressVPN protection with a simple click. You launch the app, hit the button, and it goes. Then uh, you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data taken and used in ways that you would never imagine. So ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by Tech Radar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a shot. Try it out. If you don't like it, you get your money back. It's fine. I've been using it for a while. I've been traveling a little bit lately. And honestly, I think hooking up my laptop to the public Wi-Fi at an airport is like crazy town. Uh, no idea who's on there, who's looking around, who's sniffing the packets uh, as they go through those routers. Uh, so I just turn on the VPN and I feel so much better about that. I turned it on uh, on my phone uh, a while back. I was testing it out uh, uh, when they gave me an account and realized the other day that I had never turned it off, that it had still been running and was just reconnecting. Every time that I use my phone, the point there being I, I never even noticed. So here I am surfing and I'm safe and there, I did no uh, performance impact or weird drop to network connections or anything. It just works. It's great. This, If you want to try this, it's just $7 a month. Uh, and you can get the same VPN protection that I have. So uh, if you ever use public Wi-Fi, want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com slash presentable to learn more. Uh, you can protect your online activities today uh, and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash presentable. Let me spell that out. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash presentable. Three months free with a one-year package. So thanks to our friends at ExpressVPN for their support of Presentable and for supporting all of Relay FM. All right, let's see. Uh, so you had this re uh, survey, right? Is that is that where this started? You, uh, you ran a survey. Um, is this primarily with your customers or was it more, was it broader than that? Yeah, it's well, we went to our marketing database, which includes customers, it includes past customers, it includes people who sign up for that weekly email from Clark at Envision with all the delicious puns in it. And um, so it's a it's a it's a broad group of people, but it's definitely a design oriented group of people. And um 
we uh, we basically cast a wide net and, and invited. Uh, we actually sent out uh, invitations to forty five thousand people to participate in the study. And can I just say, having done this kind of research at Forrester, to be able to invite forty five thousand people into a study is amazing. It's really hard actually to get people who are the appropriate profile of a respondent to participate in this kind of research and to pro- to provide enough depth in their responses yeah. that you can you can really kind of model a set of behaviors. When we were at Forrester, it was common to do really big studies based on, you know, a, hundred, a couple hundred responses. Mm. So with uh, with our big invitation of 45,000, we got over 2,000 companies, uh, over 2,200 companies actually, um, to provide a pretty sort of deep um, kind of uh, picture of what design is looking like in their organizations. And that, the fact that we got several thousand is really exciting because it means you can actually use statistical methods and and draw statistically valid conclusions in a way that you can't with a couple hundred people. So um, it's uh, that, yeah, it was just really exciting at, personally as somebody who does this kind of work to get to, um, to use, to work with such a big data set and with such a uh, appropriately um, targeted <laughs> set of people to describe what's going on in their companies. I have to say, after looking at the, that, just the first pass of the results, I took a, a little bit of the glass half empty this time. Mm-hmm. I was a little discouraged because I, I kind of realized you had called from people that if they're in your database, they are somewhere already on the design roadmap, right? Like, Potentially. Yeah. It's, you know, like it's not uh, what industry should I pick on today? Like a construction company that right. has never, you're like, what? I, you know, whatever. Like we, we, we make walls, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Right. So at least like there's companies that are using technology. They get this. So, in, and in that in that scope, like, ah, uh, there's not a lot of people really at the high end of this stuff yet, right? Now, I can I can always spin it as opportunistic, like, oh, my gosh, look how much room we have to grow and, like, all the opportunity that's out there. But at the same time, I was like, oh, man, oh, boy, there's not a lot of companies that are taking design and using it as the basis for decision-making in their organizations, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And I should know that, but anyway. Because you see it, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, so I, it's true. We have So the, the, the model itself is like a five – stage model. And the most mature companies, just 5% of, of companies in, in our response set are that at that most mature level. And then another 12% who are kind of at the notch right below, which I think is a pretty good place to be as well. There's probably in our five-stage model also like a, a stage zero that we don't even bother right, right, right. describing, which is what you're talking about, which is like, yeah, that company that we're just nobody's thinking about um, product design in the in that way that we are. So that, yeah, I think you're right. The The news is that there's still so much opportunity and really such a small set of companies that are, have figured out how to maximize the kind of design um, capability uh, for, for what its, uh, what its potential is. But I always think about this stuff in terms of the churn that's happening yeah. in the market right now. I mean, there's so much there's so much uh, mergers and acquisition. There's so, there's so many companies that fail, to be honest. I mean, there's been some research that in the 60s, the lifespan of a company on the S&P 500 was like 30 years. And in I think as of like 2012, it was 18 years. So companies are just staying dominant less long because they're in this really volatile environment. And so the kinds of companies that are in that top 5% in our model, there are few, they're few and far between, but they're the ones who are going to weather the storm, I think a little better. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much a state of where we are now, but it's also a state of, of who's going to be dominant, I think, uh, when in, you know, in the years ahead. Yep. 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 There are a number of kind of design maturity models out there. I know like one I'm pretty familiar with is Jared Spool's way yeah. of, of categorizing companies and things like that. I saw, uh, a presentation of, the, uh, t- 
12 or 14 different maturity models uh, in yep. uh, once, you know, the, so, um, so this concept is not new. I, I, I think your approach is, is particularly uh, interesting, but at, at a high, at the highest level uh, there, there tends to be to kind of sum up a, a stage of like design is style, make this look pretty, right? Mm-hmm. Like, d- could you decorate the thing we built? Then there is a stage of like process Right. Like mm-hmm. we, uh, uh, okay. I see. So, so to do design, well, it has to kind of happen all the time. All right. So, so we're going to turn it into here's where we do this and here's where we do this and here's where we do th- this. And ha- that's how it integrates into the rest of our company. And then there is this sort of design a strategy where, where all of the stuff that sort of you and I and, and many of the people listening to this kind of imagine design as user experience as being this like fundamental, like we're going to go out and start the process by mm-hmm. figuring out what people need or observing the world and building from that, you know, that kind of thing as this like end state. So style process strategy as, as mm-hmm. right. And, and, and as I look at a bunch of models, yours included, that's kind of like, there's different yes. shades in between, but that's, that's the big thing, right? Yeah. And I was wondering like, you know, how, how, how that fits with what you've observed. Yeah. So yeah, there are a bunch of models out there. Uh, I've personally authored several <laughs> in jobs before coming to Forrester. So I'm, um, or before coming to uh, Envision, I should say. So yeah, um, we're, we were keen to kind of think like, okay, what are we doing here that's actually needed and new? And um, what I can say, having worked on these kinds of things before, is they're often kind of sprung from the mind of a thought leader, like, you know, Athena from Zeus or something. Like there, there's yeah. there's the whiff of truth to them because these are people who've been in the field for a long time, but they don't have necessarily the the rigor of data behind them to make to make it possible to mm-hmm. hold them up and share them more broadly. And um, we did some qualitative research before actually starting the, this project to understand what do design leaders really need if they, in fact, do need another maturity model. And it turned out that what they what would be really valuable is uh, data that has quantitative rigor behind it and data that lets them talk about specifically what's going on in their industries or their regions or companies of their size. So... Um, we took an approach that was really to try to bring that kind of robust quantitative rigor to a maturity model that we hadn't seen cool. uh, per se yeah. in other ones. And what was kind of great is that in a way we validated a lot of the other models with this data. So just, you're totally right that, um, you know, style kind of process strategy ladder, which honestly, I think, where did that come from? Like the Danish design center in the I early so. yeah, 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that, I think that's where I might have picked that, that up. That is definitely, yeah, that is definitely uh, evident in the data in our model. But what was new to me actually was not like, if you think about um, style process strategy as step one, <laughs> step three and step five, yeah. we discovered what's going on at steps two and four uh, that, in a way that was really interesting. So, um, yeah, why don't you, bre- why don't you break it down like step one through five, yeah. just how you, how you think about it and what you found. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. So, so step one, or we call it level one. Um, we call these, uh, producers because, uh, they're basically, um, pushing pixels to design screens essentially, and that their design process kind of starts and stops there. So it's definitely design as style. And, um, this is evident because most of the activities they do when they describe their design process are just like wireframes and visual design comps. That's kind of it. Um, level two, we call these the connectors. This is where all of a sudden you start to see activities that indicate that the designers are trying to reach out to the organization and also to their customers. So they're doing concept uh, generation with, with, with partners. They're doing design sprints. They'll do workshops. They'll solicit stakeholder input. Um, And they'll also start to do uh, some nominal user research, 
Um, but it's the kind of user research you could, in theory, do at your desk without actually really talking to a customer, like like a journey mapping mm-hmm. uh, activity, for instance. That sounds a bit like internal marketing for your services, yeah? A little bit, a yeah. little bit. And, and, there's, and there's goodness that comes with it. Sure. We actually see that at level two. Um, those companies become more likely to report uh, that design is driving customer satisfaction. So presumably that's helping them make better decisions. Uh Um, But it's a very, it's a very kind of like workshop view of what design is. That's this thing that's like, you can put a box around it and you invite people in for a session and you put some pipe cleaners and Play-Doh on the table and everyone has a good time. And then they go back to their, their real jobs. Um, Level three, which we call the architects, is is really it is design as process. It's you see the organization is starting to figure out how to really build in design as a as a function and as a capability. And so they're they're focusing on things like design operations and design systems, things that enable scale. They're also their design process itself just shows that they're thinking about a more complex system. So they're do, using information architecture and task flows and deeper like requirements documentation mm-hmm. and just stuff to grapple with a more complex um, uh, understanding of design. In kind of a more abstract way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, got it. And got then, it, got it. Um, level four, uh, which we call um, the, the scientists, this is uh, is all about experimentation and using data actually to, to have a more informed design process. So at level four, it's suddenly prevalent for these companies to do concept testing and A-B testing and beta testing and to have pilot programs and to have mechanisms in place to rapidly spin up experiments and recruit customers for those experiments. And they also have more discipline around deciding at the outset of an initiative how they'll measure from a human-centered perspective the success of that initiative. And then they have more discipline about actually measuring it. And that level is a watershed moment in terms of actual business benefits being driven by design. Prior to that, design drives maybe some usability improvements, some customer satisfaction improvements. Mm-hmm. At level three, they start to kind of drive some revenue. But at level four, they're driving cost savings, employee efficiency, time to market, uh, and, a, and a host of other benefits. So that like design as a learning process only really becomes evident at level four. And then level five, we, we, where we, we call these visionaries, this is mm. totally design as strategy. But what was interesting for us is we could see, how do I put this? So one thing that we asked in the survey, is we asked, do you do design strategy? And everybody says they do design strategy, <laughs> level one, two, or, you know, and beyond. But it's only at level five where they actually can kind of like show the receipts. <laughs> they <laughs> they do um, they they also show that they do trend spotting and foresight analysis. They do uh, market research. They do um, they'll do product market fit uh, kind of experimentation. They produce cross channel strategies. They produce vision documentation. They actually can sure show what design strategy should look like if you're really doing it. And um, so it is, I think, a validation that, that top level is strategy. But I think it also gives a little more specificity to what strategy means than we have often had in the past. Um, so those are the levels. And to me, level two and level four are fascinating because level two, I think of that as the design thinking craze. This is like mm. companies who have a somewhat unsophisticated idea of design coming off of being maybe being level one who are like, oh, we got to get some design thinking. So we're going to learn how to do these workshops. We're going to brainstorm together. And there is goodness that comes from that. But that is not the same as actually building the the kind of learning process into how you do your work every day, which is what actually happens at level four, and which is where actually most of the business benefits start to accrue. 
fascinating. That's uh, that's great. So that's the connectors. And then the scientists, you also found that the sort of as, as another sort of compelling kind of transition between the two. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, the, yeah, the scientists, that level four, so between like level three and level five, those scientists who are, I think of this as like the people who figured out how to do data driven design yeah. And, yeah, have, yeah. and there's so much talk about it, but I think it's really, it's not so, so prevalent still. And what's kind of scary actually is level three which is the those architects who are really building in a large design practice, they have very large design teams. The average design team size at level three was 50 designers. So these are like big design functions who are building out large capabilities and, and they're doing good work. They're, they're, they are actually driving revenue. So to be sure, they're, they're bringing value to their business. But what this data suggests is at least you can have very big design organization that actually still doesn't necessarily know how to use design to uh, to to validate if it's making the right choices and to prove that to the business. That's, um, so so level what's going on at level four, I think, is 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 kind of the, the next the next um, kind of frontier for design. It's going to be pretty important for everybody. It sounds like it. OK, I have more questions about that for sure. But first, I want to take a little break and tell you uh, about one of our sponsors. And that is our friends at Abstract. Uh, Abstract is design workflow management software for modern design teams. So more and more tech companies are realizing every day that design is a competitive advantage. And they're also finding that the workflows and tools that they use are just not up to scratch. So if you're a designer, you'll know how frustrating this is. You search and you export files from one tool to another, especially when you're consolidating feedback from multiple sources and never being totally sure what changes have been made and what are approved and where's the feedback. That's where Abstract comes in. Our friend Josh Brewer, who was on the program a few months ago, uh, was formerly the principal designer at Twitter. He's the founder and his goal in this uh, product was to sort of develop the GitHub for designers. That's uh, kind of think of abstract as your team's version controlled source of truth for all the design work that they're doing. It brings design workflow into a single unified place so that designers and developers and stakeholders can all collaborate and keep the work moving forward. Uh, in the last two years, abstract has already gotten a hundred thousand users uh, and they are spending less time searching for files and tracking down feedback and more time focused on innovation and collaboration. These are companies like Zappos and MailChimp and they're and into it and they're all relying on Abstract to improve their design workflows and collaboration. Here's the things you can do with Abstract. You can design, uh, you can take your design files and version them. You can present the work. You can request reviews for the work. You can give feedback on the work uh, and you can give developers direct access to all the specs they need to make the work and that's all from one place. So sign up your your team for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to goabstract.com. That's goabstract.com. And this is pretty cool. If you do, if you send out a tweet uh, and and tag uh, at goabstract and at presentable FM, just use the phrase improve my design workflow. Uh, and they're gonna pick one of those tweets and give you a $500 credit for the business plan. You get your whole team set up for a while. Uh, that abstract, uh, that URL one more time is goabstract.com. It's a free 30-day trial. Go try it out. It's amazing. Uh, so my thanks to Josh and the team over at Abstract for supporting this show and for supporting all of Relay FM. All right. So uh, we have a nice model. It's got uh, five steps and or five levels and uh, some good definitions for that. What do you think the value of having this understanding really is? 
I'd like to hear your perspective. I've got a lot of perspectives on it, but I'd love to hear what mm. yours is. I think there's different value to different people. Um, we talk to a lot of different design organizations who, you know, they have large and complex structures now. So you have maybe your like VP or even your CDO who who has to be a good partner to other business leaders who don't necessarily understand design. Um, they may have deputies who are in the business of operationalizing design for their organizations. And then there's a whole raft of mid-level mm. design managers who are trying to figure out how to just like run an effective process for their teams and, and to be good partners to engineering and to product management. So I think this model, in a sense, has something for everybody. It, it, it helps um, very senior people have a framework to, to kind of speak to their organization about where they are now and where they want to be. Good. Um, I talked to somebody from a, a large tel telco recently, and she was saying she had just come out of a meeting with uh, their head of data. And the head of data was saying, yeah, we're doing design. We're doing design thinking. And her her thought was like, this model helps to point to that person and say, yeah, you're doing design at level two, but right. we're aspiring to even even three or four or five, right. you know, but it just gives a tool for having that conversation. Um, separately from that, I think it can actually serve if you look into the study itself, we, in addition to the level, the five levels, we identify nine dimensions of maturity. You kind of grow progressively in uh, ability around as you advance up the levels. So for those people who are operationalizing design or those team leads, really paying attention to those nine dimensions and understanding where you're weak and where you're strong can sort of serve as a diagnostic tool to help you figure out where you need to um, uh, invest to kind of move up to that next level of maturity. Uh, so it's good for that. And then my personal favorite part of this report is there's a big appendix at the back that actually has all the data tables with all the questions um, that shows essentially where certain behaviors become prevalent at each level. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it's kind of gnarly if you're not like a person who likes this sort of thing. But um, <laughs> if you are, what it gives you is essentially a playbook for saying like, oh, wow, we're not doing guerrilla research. And it looks like that becomes really common at level four. So this gives me some some evidence to say like we want to do this because we want to get to level four or we want to do you know whatever specific discrete activity it is but it gives you um a real a, a deep data to, to talk about why certain activities are important kind of a roadmap like i'm just yeah. imagining like all right i'm hired as design director at this like you know totally. enterprise comp enterprise scale company uh here's my five-year plan I, can yeah, see, I see where we are now. Here's a great list of things we don't do. Yeah. Um, let's put them in order and start getting, and get to work. That's nice. It's always nice to have nice the framework. Yeah. Um, the other thing, the tying back to the first thing we were talking about, again, having a framework for your own career, which is I yeah. have always, you know, talking to young designers, they're like, what should I do next? And I'm like, well, whatever you do, go work for an organization that really values design. And, and this is, here's a litmus test, right? Um, totally. Uh, yeah. Hang on, I took a couple of notes on that. Where is it? Oh, right here. Yeah. Like when you are interviewing for a job, asking uh, all the people you interview with uh, questions about uh, how design is valued in the organization, but doing it kind of obliquely, right? Like yeah. uh, uh, people from the design team being promoted into leadership positions is a great one. Like, let's talk about that. How often does that happen? Who are they? When did totally. that happen? You know, that kind of thing. Um, one of the things I've always looked at is um, tell me a little bit about the attrition of the design team over the last couple of years. Like, is it growing oh, or is it, is it, you know, like, are, yeah. are they all the same people or have you swapped yeah. them all out lately? You know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, yeah, that's a great one. 
or even like as you're walking through an office, I do this all the time, you know, in, in my role as an investor here, but like uh, walking through an office and, and just kind of looking around and seeing like, are there artifacts? Are there, uh, yeah. is there a sense, not, and not even just like the classic, like, oh, they got a bunch of wireframes on the walls, but yeah. is there a sense of in the physical space that uh, this company is aware of their customers and engaged with them? How can you totally. tell, right? Like, yeah, and you see yeah. stuff like that. And then getting really deep, like asking about, like, do employees from all the different disciplines in this organization, how are they involved in this research you're so happy to talk about? You know? Exactly. Like, exactly. Or is it just yeah. the four of you doing all the research and, like, the reports, <laughs> you're writing your reports and they're going in, on the internet, right? Like, so uh, it's stuff like that. And I love, you know, I love that you call out all of those things because those are all dimensions that we ask about in the study. I'm and sure, and yeah. you can really see the data about, you know, if your company's, uh, at a level two and it's not doing that, then, you know, it gives you a sense of what else is also not happening in yeah. that company at a level two. So those are, those are really good specific examples. I love those. Yeah. Yeah. Any other signals or any other ways that we, we might use this data? Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, somebody listening to this podcast, feeling a bit frustrated, like we're just not making progress here. And, uh, and I don't know, what have you, what, what did you hear as you were doing this research from people that maybe had been a little more successful? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think, the reality is you can only use this data in as much as you have good working relationships with people to start. So uh, I think partially it's, it's, uh, it's about beginning to have a conversation <laughs> with key partners, uh, particularly in product and engineering, about mm. what their aspiration is for design and, and their aspirations for the product more broadly. I mean, yeah. forget design, but like, what are we trying to accomplish together? And then um, from from that kind of high level goal of, you know, what maybe we're trying to improve the customer experience, or maybe we're trying to drive more revenue, or maybe we're trying to bring products to market fa faster. This data kind of, it, it gives you a little bit of a compass to say, well, if we want to get to that level, there are certain types of activities we need to be doing together in the product development and design process. And so let's look about look at what those activities could be. Um, so I think some of the, the business benefits data that are that's in the study it be, it's kind of the thin edge of of the wedge for, for starting to have kind of more substantive conversations about what should happen in the design process itself but really the you know relationships again like a, yeah. a very recurring theme on this podcast which is yeah. uh, to get better at design get better at building relationships and trust right yeah but but one interesting thing for insight i think for me from the the study was actually that um those like executive relationships that we all wring our hands about so much Yep. They're good, but they're not they're not actually the most critical ones. I mean, they come, but they kind of come early. They start hitting in at like level two. All of a sudden, <laughs> the executives start participating in the design process and talking about the value of design. Also, just general employees, they what we see in the data is that the organization likes the idea of design and likes the idea of knowing their customers. And all that happens at a pretty you know early level. But it's the key partnerships with the people you actually have to sit shoulder to shoulder with to, to get a product out the door. Those only really start to become well calibrated at level three and beyond. So that's the place to really pay attention. Um, so it's the relationships, but it's, I think we've been over indexing perhaps on kind of those, those top influencers for a long time. And now it's time to like become good partners. Get some peers. Yeah, yeah that's good. Exactly. I like that. Stop, yeah. stop chasing the boss around. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Um, it seems much to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, anyway. exactly. Uh, it seems like one of the values here might be looking at a study like this over time, right? Like that the delta might be as interesting 
as the initial results. Uh, you read my mind, Jeff. Oh, hey, I'm agree. setting you yes. up then. Okay. And, well, that, that's what it seemed to me. I'm like, ah, you know, as you were, we were talking a bit about some of the caveats. It's like, well, they come from our database, the, the respondents and, and yeah. stuff, and, and we can't ca- cast the broadest net and stuff. But if this group of people five years from now, it's like goes from five to you know, I'll be super optimistic and say 11% of design, yeah. design as visionary, right? It's level five companies now. Like that's a huge, that's a huge thing for us. Like, yeah, that's, that'd be really good. So anyway, I imagine you, you might want to start uh, thinking about the next one and the next one. Huh? I like that idea. Thank you for the tip. I will, <laughs> I will definitely bring that back to the office. And uh, yeah, I think we, we are definitely interested in paying attention to this data over time and seeing how the market evolves. So I would expect more, more research on this topic and uh, using this framework. I, it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, no, 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 what is it? Stack Exchange, right? Stack mm-hmm. Exchange does mm-hmm. this survey every year of what languages, I mean, it's very, very technical, right? What languages yeah. and um, do, do people are using? What, what what do they wish they could use? And it, and it goes on and on. Uh, and they have done it every year for 12 years or something like that. You just see the rise and fall of different programming languages and, uh, and different job yeah. titles and all of that kind of stuff. And and I, f- I have found that, again, like the change over time is the thing that's interesting around that. The most important. Yeah, I, 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 don't feel like, I don't feel like we have something like that in the design industry consistently. Or maybe I'm missing something. And, uh, I think so- you're right. Yeah. It feels like there's like a good – there's often like a, a run of one or two good years of a certain kind of study. And then it's, it kind of peters out. So, yeah, it would be it would be a nice one to, to put on repeat. Yeah, you can imagine like – uh, and maybe even more more broadly, having ten years of data of, over job titles, right? Like I think we have yeah. a lot more product designers and a lot oh gosh, fewer information <laughs> architects, or you know, whatever. Like completely, that, yeah. 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 Interesting. That's good. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll just say, pay attention. There's going to be more research coming from Envision over the course of the next year or so on, on questions like those. So, uh, fortunately, we don't have to uh, work too hard to pay attention because Clark will send us an email every Tuesday. <laughs> Clark from Envision <laughs> yes. in my inbox. I love that. It makes <laughs> exactly. me happy. I smile every time I see it. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, and where can we find out a little more about you? Let's see. LeahBewley.com. We can. I'll yep. put a link to that in the show notes. You got some uh, great stuff over there. And then yep. Leah Bewley on Twitter. Anything else? Anything else you want to? Um, well, if you want to check out the the study that we've been talking about, go of to course. designbetter.co. Yeah, I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. So you could just uh, look in your podcast player and tap the link and you'll be right there. Uh, great. Hey, I really appreciate the conversation. It's super interesting. This has been fun. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, thanks for being on the show. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.